Mark, I always feel good about you reading those passages with all the names. Those are kind of tough ones. You don't, we don't spring those on just anyone. <laughs> well, my name is Corey. I'm the senior pastor here at Wade Park Church, and we're glad to have you here. And we are also giving thanks for air conditioning today, aren't we? Well, um, I, was, uh, I can remember a time when I was first learning to drive. And you have to remember, I grew up on a small, uh, well, on a farm in South Dakota. So I was about six years old at the time. Okay, that might be a little exaggeration. Probably 14. Uh, we lived on the same farm as my grandparents, and on the farm, we had a big gas tank, probably a 500-gallon gas tank. They would buy it in bulk, because we used a lot of gasoline as well for tractors and trucks and things. And uh, it was up on a stand that was about six feet off the ground, and it had your regular hose and the nozzle, just like you would at a regular gas station. And, uh, and it kind of hung down there below. And I don't remember where I was going. I probably thought I was going into town to pick up some girls in their 1978 Chevy pickup truck. Um, but I did find out when I was growing up, you can't pick up many girls in a 1978 Chevy pickup truck. You can get a lot of lumber and gravel and things, but girls not so much. Uh, on the front of the truck was what you call a, a grill guard, and it's something like this. I think I've got a picture of it there, um, only it wasn't as cool. Uh, it, was, it was effective, but not as cool, which is probably why I didn't get a lot of girls. But I filled up with gas, and, uh, and when I was done, I hung the nozzle back up on the tank or up on the, uh, on the structure there, and uh, hopped in the truck, and in typical teenage fashion, turned the car on, threw it in reverse, didn't really look, but just slammed on the gas. Gravel was flying everywhere, of course, and, uh, and I didn't really look behind me, but that really wasn't the most important thing. I actually wasn't really paying attention to what was going on in front of me either because I didn't realize that that grill guard got hooked on the hose of the tank. And uh, because I wasn't careful, I pulled out of there, and before I knew it, I had yanked the hose off the, off the tank, and gasoline just started shooting out all over the ground. And I know Renata is like covering her, covering her ears right now, because this is an environmental tragedy, right? Uh, so I ran, and I got my dad as, as fast as I could, and he came running over there, and the first thing he did was he just stuck his hand up over the hole. And of course, when you're doing that, then a gas is just shooting all over, and it was getting in his eyes, and, but he finally got to put enough pressure on it to, to make the gasoline stop. And uh, so he told me, you need to go get your grandpa, and, uh, and he'll know what to do. And so I ran over to the machine shed where my grandpa was, and he went and, uh, and got a huge cork and a hammer. And I don't know why he had a huge cork. <clears throat> I guess that's something standard that you keep in machine sheds. Uh, but he came over and he plugged up the hole. <coughs> and, uh, you know, the whole, the whole situation was kind of solved. Now, of course, I felt terrible about it. Because I, I knew it was the result of me just being completely irresponsible. And I felt bad because, you know, the gas was getting in my dad's eyes. And, and I could tell that it was really hurting him. And, uh, and so I went over and I sat on my grandparents' stairs and, and kind of sulked. I should have gone and hid if I knew it was good for me. But I just knew I was in big trouble. Uh, because I was, knew I was careless, I knew that whatever punishment I got, it probably wasn't enough. And, and so I braced myself for the worst when my dad uh, started walking over toward me. But I was really surprised that when he got over to me, rather than standing there and yelling at me and telling me how irresponsible I was, he sat down beside me. And he started to tell me a story about a 14-year-old boy who was gassing up a tractor one day 
and was backing away from the gas tank, and the hose got hooked on the tractor and pulled it off, and gas spewed everywhere. And of course, you can probably guess that 14-year-old boy was my dad. And uh, I, I heard the story, and I let out this sigh of relief, you know, because I knew, well, I'm, not, I'm at least not going to get it too bad here. In fact, I don't think I got any punishment. I mean, I knew I was careless. I knew I deserved it, but I don't think I got any. But instead, what I got was my dad's presence with me. Okay? And that revealed everything that I needed to know, not just about him, but also my standing with him. Now, why do I tell the story? Well, I tell it because it's a good analogy of God's solution to our sin problem. You see, while the Bible does tell us about a God who's not afraid to, to punish us, today we're actually going to look at a story that ultimately tells us that God's solution to our sin problem is not punishment, but it's His presence. Now, we're four messages into this passage or into this uh, series that we're doing called God's Big Story. And what we're doing is, is we're walking through all of Scripture. We're taking a, a big picture look or a bird's eye view of Scripture, but taking a look at different snapshots that, that tell the story of the whole uh, picture of, of Scripture. And the reason we're doing that is because oftentimes when we hear about the Bible, we hear it in little bits and pieces. We hear about it out of context. And so oftentimes it's hard for us to understand what any of the stories mean for us. And so we want to give you the big picture of Scripture so when you are reading a passage of Scripture or you're hearing a lesson or something, then you have some idea of where it fits in the overall uh, theme of, of Scripture. And, uh, and so naturally, we, at the beginning, we started with creation, uh, that God created a world, and He saw that it was good. Uh, and we also saw that unlike the pagan myths that were going around in the day, that God created human beings intentionally. It, they were a loving act of a creator. And, and He created us in His image, which means that we have a responsibility to order the world toward flourishing. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. But the story of Adam and Eve also shows us that we fail in that responsibility. And rather than living for God's purpose, rather than living according to God's wisdom, we declare our independence from God, think we can do it for ourselves. And the result of that, of our independence from God, is broken relationship with God and broken relationship with each other. Um, and, and when we reject God's wisdom, inevitably what happens is, is we turn toward ourselves. You, you know, because we're all like this. We want power. We want recognition. We want comfort. And if our primary aim is to please ourselves and to give ourselves those things, then we will use other people to achieve those ends. And that means that we have strained relationships. Well, last week we looked at Genesis chapters 3 through 11, and it, and it describes some examples of how this selfishness, how this independence from God plays out. For instance, the first brothers, uh, the older brother Cain, kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. Fast forward a few chapters to, uh, to Genesis chapter 11, and we find out that the Tower of Babel, it's an example of people who are using their technology to make a name for themselves, trying to reach God by their own effort and their own power. And what it means is, is that this tendency to want independence from God causes us to, to do what we call sin. And so now we have a sin problem. And so the question of Scripture then becomes, what will God do with our sin problem? 
So we pick up the story today in Genesis chapter 12. If you turn there with Mark, I want you to stay there. If you closed your Bible, open it back up because we're going to be walking through these two passages today from Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. And what we find here is this follows the Tower of Babel story. So we know that the world is in pretty bad shape. But instead of judging the world like he did in the flood a few chapters earlier, God's solution started by offering grace through a relationship with a single man, a man named Abram. Now, Abram lived in what is now, I guess, modern day would be Iraq, kind of southeastern Iraq. And at the time that God came to him, Abram wasn't really seeking God, but God came to him anyway, and he asked him to do something. He said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Basically, what he says is, comes to Abram, just appears out of the blue and says, Abram, I want you to move. Okay, now, some of you have moved dozens of times, and so it's not really that big of a deal to you, or maybe you think it's a big deal because it is kind of a hassle. You know, it's a pain for us, but for Abram, it actually would have been an absolutely crazy request because he would have been leaving so much. So what are the things that he would have been leaving? Well, he would have had to leave the protection of his family. Now, Today, while our decision to move might be hard, ultimately we're oftentimes willing to do it for the sake of a better job opportunity or more money. And and the reason is, is because we live in a fairly safe world. Okay, we live in a country that has police, you know, they have federal law enforcement and state and local and county. And, and uh, so if we move to a place where people don't know us, generally we have a pretty good idea that they'll be good neighbors, they'll be hospitable, or even if they're not hospitable, there will be some police there that, to be able to sort of keep them in check and we won't have to worry about our own safety. Well, Abraham's world was different because there were no centralized governments anywhere to keep peace. And so your immediate family oftentimes was just part of a larger clan, or if you wanted, if you needed that safety, you would make a covenant with another clan, and then you would, there would be some strength in numbers, or maybe you could live in a city that had walls around it, and then you could band together as a city, and you would be safe, and at least you could rely on each other for protection. Well, Abram had lived in that same place, or his family had lived in that same place for generations, and so he had built up all of those systems that would have kept him safe, and so when he moved, he would have lost the protection of all of those relationships with family and other people that they had formed relationships with, and he would be out on his own. So that's one thing that he'd be leaving behind. The second thing that he would be giving up is the financial security of his land. You see, Abram's life wasn't just tied to family, but it was also tied to the land. That's why in Scripture you hear so much talk about land. Land was an important thing. It was a a critical thing in those days because there were no bankers, there were no web developers, there were no hairstylists, there weren't people in the service industry. Everything was tied to the land. And and Abraham's land was a known commodity. Uh, He knew it could, could sustain all of his livestock. It could feed his family. It could take care of him. And so he had to trust that when he moved to this land that God didn't even tell him where it was that he had to trust that this new God uh, that had land that was good enough to be able to sustain him and his family and his operation. And, and, And maybe even more than that, He probably wanted to believe that this land was going to actually be better than what he had to go to all of this trouble to move hundreds of miles away. And so he was giving up the security of his land. He was also, and this might be a surprise to you, he was also giving up his God. Now, if your company transfers you to Tuscaloosa, say, 
um, you'll have to give up a few things, right? You'll have to move away from family and friends. Um, you'll have to move away from a familiar city with amazing winters. You'll, uh, but while, you're, while you'll be leaving your church here, chances are it wouldn't even cross your mind that you would have to leave your God here right? Because presumably, I mean, we, uh, presumably you would believe that God would be waiting there for you in Tuscaloosa, right? Because we believe in a God that is everywhere, except for maybe Green Bay, but jury's still out on that. Um, But anyway, if you move to Tuscaloosa, I think he's probably there. Anyway, because we believe that God is, that God is everywhere. Now, Abram was a product of his society, and so he would have probably worshipped family gods or territorial gods at the time, and he wouldn't have known anything about the God of the Bible, uh, because people then worshipped a God who controlled the territory that they lived in, and so they believed that if they did the right sacrifices and did the right things, that that God would protect them from other gods, from evil spirits, from natural disasters, or other kinds of of threats. And so, if Abram moved from his land, he would would be not only losing the presence of his family, the security of his, uh, of his land, but he would also be losing his family's God. And that was a huge risk to take in those, in those days. Now, at the time, Abram lived about as secure a life as possible. He was wealthy. He lived in a good location. He had a stable family system, had a family God. Uh, so if moving meant forfeiting all of those things, why in the world would he even consider it? Why in the world would he even listen to a God that he had never heard of before and do it? Well, the reason is because despite everything he had, Abraham was actually missing the critical piece of the good life in those days, children. See, in Abraham's day, children were your identity. They were your, your legacy. And, and I know we love children right now, and when we have them, we're really happy, and when we can't have them, it's, it's devastating for us. But if you take, that, if you take that, um, that feeling about children and multiply it by about 100, this is how they felt about children in, in Abram's day. Um, your identity, your legacy, and in a way, your salvation rested on your kids because most likely Abram at the time didn't believe in anything like heaven. And so if you wanted to live on, you needed to have children. And maybe your body wouldn't live on, but your seed would live on. And so this was like the afterlife for him. And since Abram at the time was 75 years old and he still didn't have any children, believing this strange God would have been a high-risk, high-reward proposition. And so, what does God promise him in return for leaving behind all of these things that he had? Well, in verse 2, here's what it says. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, if you break it down, what you'll see here is God is actually making two sets of promises. Uh, The first set is for Abram. The second set is for the rest of the world, okay? Here's the promises to Abram. First of all, I will make you into a great nation. Now, to Abram, this would have meant people and land, okay? You have to have enough people to make a nation, and a nation has to have land as well. And so God's promise is is that he and his descendants will actually have both. And so risking his security and prosperity could mean greater security and prosperity for his descendants. And that was something that was appealing to Abram. Okay, the second promise that he made is that God would bless Abram. Okay, now this doesn't mean that God would just say nice things about Abram. 
Okay, but what Abram gave up in his own life, God in his old life, God would restore to him in his new life. And so to Abram, the blessing that he would receive from God meant good health, long life, large herds, uh, family harmony. God would bless Abram himself. That was part of the promise. And the third, third thing he says is, I will make your name great. Okay? Now, <clears throat> Abram wanted to have a legacy. He did. It's, I think it's a natural thing. It wasn't an ego thing at all. Okay? In fact, for Abram, it was kind of an offer of salvation. Uh, but Abram's name would not become great by making it happen on his own. Now, what's interesting about this is if you remember in the previous chapter, in Genesis chapter 11, the, the Tower of Abel, the people built the tower. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to make a great name for themselves. Okay? And so this chapter... This promise is just the opposite of that, that, that Abram would not have to try to make a name for himself, but God would make his name great if he just had faith. God would bless Abram him, himself. <clears throat> now, the second set of promises here start at the end of verse 2. And, and these promises are not directly about Abram. They come through Abram. But it's really more about Abram's impact on the world. <clears throat> so it starts with this general summary. It says, you will be a blessing. And then it gets more specific, right? So here's what it says then. I think this is the beginning of verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you. You know, which is really cool when you think about it, that anyone who sort of attaches themselves to Abram, that God would bless them. God would treat people according to how they treat Abram and family. That sounds like a great promise, okay? And now this is where people start to have some issues with this uh, because the, the story takes it even further in verse 3. Not only will God bless those who bless Abraham, okay? He says this, I will curse uh, and th whoever curses you, I will curse. Now, a lot of us have a problem with this because we like to believe that God loves everyone equally. That's what, we're, that's what we're taught all the time. And it seems here like God is playing favorites. I mean, why would God choose Abram and not choose everyone else? Why would God curse people just because they didn't like Abram? It's kind of troubling to us. It doesn't seem very fair. And in fact, it, it actually seems like a recipe for creating a monster. I don't know if you remember uh, being in elementary school, but let's say you're in elementary school, like third grade or fourth grade, and everyone in your class knows that Sally is the teacher's favorite, right? How does everyone feel about Sally? Not very, not very keen to Sally, are they? Um, and, and the reason is, is because they know that the teacher will always stand up for her, and, and she knows it too, and, and nobody likes her, but she doesn't care because she has special status with the teacher. She knows the teacher will always stand up for her, and so she might even start arguments. She might even get into little scrapes and taunt other people because she knows she can get away with it. And this makes everybody else in the class roll their eyes and go, oh, brother, how did she get to be the teacher's favorite? Right? And this is the idea that, that starts to go into our mind when we talk about God playing favorites. It just it creates monsters. When, when you believe that God is on your side and not on anyone else's side, then, man, who knows what kinds of crazy and horrible things you could do. And this is the image that we get when we think about God choosing someone and not others. Okay? But let's take a little closer look here and see why God chose Abram. Okay? We see it in verse 2. It's, he says this, he says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. 
And at the end of verse 3, he continues on, whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, God chose Abram and his descendants not so that they would be saved and everyone else would be lost, but, but that they would be the means by which God would bless the rest of the world. So in other words, they weren't chosen just for privilege, they were chosen for responsibility. Just like humans, we saw in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the first act of the play in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that Adam and Eve were created to, in the image of God, not just for privilege, but as a responsibility to, not to exploit the world, but to care for it and to order the world toward flourishing. Now, I don't want you, want you to misunderstand. It wasn't Abram's responsibility to save the world, okay? He was not the savior. God is the one who did the blessing, and Abram's job was just to be faithful, and God would do the rest. Well, Abram heard this promise, and so he decided it was worth the risk, and so he moved. And so then we read three stories about how God tests Abram's faith. The first one is at the end of chapter 12, um, where Abram gets to the land, but instead of finding abundance there, he finds a famine. And, uh, and so he decides to take things into his own hands, and he goes down to Egypt. But while he's in Egypt, he fears that Pharaoh is going to see his wife Sarai, who is apparently really beautiful. And so he's afraid that Pharaoh is going to take her and kill him and, uh, and marry Sarai. And so Abram does what any reasonable man does. He tells Pharaoh that Sarai is his sister. And, uh, and, and sure enough, Pharaoh sees her, he likes what he sees, and he takes her. But of course, God isn't happy about this, not just because Pharaoh is, is taking Sarai, that was probably a pretty common thing at the time, but it's because it threatens the promise that he's made to Abram. And so he sends plagues on Pharaoh's house, household, and Pharaoh calls Abram and says, what the heck, Abram? Sarai is not your sister. What are you trying to do to me here? Right? And, uh, and so he gives Sarai back to Abram and throws them out of Egypt. And the first story is a story that even when Abram fails, that God will be faithful to fulfilling his promise. God takes care of that promise even when Abram is a failure. The second story is in chapter 13, where Abram and Lot, they head toward Canaan, they leave Egypt, but their hired men starting, start to get into this fight because their, their herds are so big that the land that they were in could not sustain them. And so they decide that it would be smart to separate. And so Abram for some reason, allows Lot to choose. And he says, okay, you pick the land first and then I'll go wherever you don't go. And, and Lot actually chooses land that's just south of the city of Sodom and it's good land and so he goes there and Abram um, is left with something a little bit further to the north uh, around a city called Hebron. Now Hebron, um, if you know the geography there, was within the bounds of the land that God was going to give Abram. And so the moral of this story is it, it shows how God is true to his promise to give Abram the land, that Abram doesn't have to reach out and grab it for himself, but he just allows God to, to give him that blessing. The third story is in chapter 14. There are some local kings there, actually kings from the east that join together, and they attack the cities around where Lot is living. 
um, where Abram's nephew is living. And, uh, and Lot and his family get caught in the, caught in the crossfire, and they end up getting taken away uh, by these kings. Well, when word gets to Abram, he gathers his fighting men. This is how big of an operation Abram had. He gathers his fighting men, 318 of them, and goes on a reconnaissance mission to go get, uh, to go get Lot back. And he defeats the kings, and he brings Lot back, and all of the possessions that were stolen in the first battle. And, uh, and, and then, even though he has a right to take all of those spoils, he could take all of that stuff for himself, he actually returns it all back to where it came from. And not only that, but because he defeated those kings, those kings owned the land that they were living in. Because Lot defeated those kings, he would have had a right to that land as well, to take it for himself. But instead, he refuses to do that. And so this third story shows us that Abram's faith, um, because of Abram's faith, he, God allows him to live in this land rather than taking a shortcut and grabbing it for himself. Okay, And so you start to see this interplay between Abram's faith and God's blessing, that Abram is continually becoming more and more faithful to God, and God is remaining faithful to Abram. And that brings us to chapter 15. Now, the three stories that we read earlier show us how chaotic Abram's world was. And uh, even though Abram had just won a battle, he had to know that world, word would get around eventually. And someone or some coalition of people would eventually come and challenge him and, and, uh, and threaten that land. Because if you didn't have alliances that you could trust at the time, then you were vulnerable to powerful clans or, or other cities that would come and attack. And that was Abram's reality. And so if you're living in that kind of a reality, you can imagine how Abram would feel a bit uh, vulnerable and start to doubt and start to wonder, did I really do the right thing, leaving all the security that I had in my, in my father's uh, lands, um, leaving the pe- my people and leaving my God? Did I really do the right thing? And so chapter 15 is actually really kind of a, a touching moment here where God came to Abram in a vision, and he said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And of course, shield means I'm your protection. And when he says, I'm your great reward, it means that he'll provide for Abram's needs. So it's God reassuring him of the original promise that he made. Okay? But he also, in the moment, he allows Abram to express some doubts that he has about this. So in verse 4, uh, or in verse 2, This is what Abram says. He says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then we get to verse 4, and God promises him that that heir is going to be his own child. It's going to be his flesh and blood. And he takes him outside and he says, look at the stars in the sky. See, that's how many your offspring will be. And for some reason, Abraham was, was satisfied with that for the time being. And so we see this famous line in, uh, in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram takes God at his word. There was no further proof needed that he was going to have an heir. But the conversation continues and, and, and God says, not only will I give you an heir, but I'm also going to give you the land that you're on right now. But again, in a moment of vulnerability, uh, Abram starts to doubt. And he asks him in verse 8, he says, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now, this is something that is kind of a question for us. Why in the world did Abram believe God when he promised an heir, 
but not believe him when he promised him some land. Well, the promise of the heir, what we find out is that the promise of, the, of having an heir would be fulfilled within his lifetime. In other words, he would know whether that promise would be fulfilled. But the promise of land, possessing that land, would be something that he would happen long after he was gone. You see, Abram wanted some assurance that God would take care of his descendants in the same way that he took care of him. And so Abram, when he asked this question, wasn't just thinking of himself. He was thinking about all of the people who would follow him. How do I know, God, that you're going to take care of them as well? Because he wanted them to have just as good or even better life than what he did. And of course, God responds exactly the way we would expect him to. He says, bring me a cow. Right? That's what it said. I mean, look in verse 9. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. I know that we think this is a strange answer, don't we? Okay? But for Abram, it would have made complete sense because he knew what God was doing. Because God is about to take Abram through a covenant ceremony. Now, a covenant ceremony was a binding ceremony in those days between two people in the ancient world. And we don't really have anything like it in our day. Probably the clo closest thing would be a wedding ceremony, but there are some differences there as well. I mean, even today, it's not a perfect analogy because marriage doesn't seem to be the binding covenant that, that this kind of covenant was. I mean, this kind of covenant was an unbreakable covenant between two people who wanted to tie their fate together. Now, ideally, that's what marriage is for us. But we know that in our society, it doesn't always mean that. Okay? Now, the covenant ceremony worked this way, okay? that, that, that they would cut some animals in half and they would splay them out on the ground, okay? blood, guts, everything. Okay? And then each party would walk through the pieces of the animals and they would take an oath that I will be faithful to you and these are the terms of the covenant. And then they would call curses on themselves, basically saying, if I break the terms of this treaty, may I be torn apart in the same way these animals have been torn apart. Now imagine if we did this with weddings, how much more exciting they would be. <laughs> we, we have vows, but we don't have curses. Okay? Now we're going to do the rings, now we're going to do the vows, now the curses if you break your promise. So after Abram prepared the animals, night came and he fell asleep. And then we get to verse 17. This is what it says. <coughs> when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Now, all of this is very symbolic because it happens in a vision, um, but the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch are, are symbols of God's presence. Anytime, oftentimes when you see fire in the Old Testament, you'll, it's, a, it's a symbol of God's presence. Or even in the New Testament at Pentecost, when tongues of flames uh, landed on people's head, that was a symbol of God's presence being with them. And, uh, and so basically what's happening is, is God is walking through the pieces. And he says, if I am not faithful to this covenant, then may I be torn in half. I don't know how that happens with God. But essentially, that's what he's doing. He's saying, I will be faithful to the terms of this covenant. Okay. Now, one thing that, you, that I want you to notice here, about here, that's a little different about other covenants, is that typically in those covenants, both partners of the covenant would walk through the pieces. Okay. But what I want you to see here is that God doesn't make Abram walk through the pieces. 
God is willing to walk through the pieces himself, calling curses on himself, but he never asks Abram to do the same thing. And what this means is that God alone is taking responsibility for this to happen. All Abram has to do is trust, be faithful to God, and God will do the rest. Now, one other thing that we see about the covenant ceremony, and this is a little bit later in a couple of, of uh, chapters later in, verse, in chapter 17, um, but I think, it's worth, I think it's worth mentioning because I think this is also remarkable. A little later, after God tells Abram and Sarai that she's pregnant, Abram responds by worshiping. He falls, to, falls on his face and he worships. And it's at that point that God renames Abram, Abraham. And how he does that is he takes the H out of his, out of his name. He, they called him Yahweh, okay? And so that H in the middle then, he takes it out of that name and he places it in the middle of Abraham's name, in Abram's name. And so he goes from being Abram to Abraham. And then he does the same thing with Sarai. Instead of Sarai, now she's called Sarah. And just like in, in the same way that we do in a wedding ceremony, when we take each other's name, we identify with each other. And not only that, but you'll notice that in Scripture from that point on, when God is introducing himself to new people, he will call himself, he will say, I am the God of Abraham, or I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Now imagine how binding that covenant is that God decides, I'm going to change my name to let people know how with you I am. It's pretty, a pretty incredible thing. Now, this is a series about how all the pieces fit together to tell the big story, and I know that that kind of leaves us hanging. There's a lot of story left to go, and we'll get to it, okay? But ultimately, God's promise of an heir did come true when Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah, and of course, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob was later renamed to Israel. He was called Israel, okay? And so what we see is, is that the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that, that, that he would be the father of a great nation, became the people of Israel. Okay? God's blessing came to the, the world through Israel in a couple of different ways. First, God revealed himself to the world through Israel's law. Now, oftentimes we think about the law as a bad thing. Number one, it's really boring. Number two, it has some weird stuff in there that we don't really like and some things that we might not even agree with and, and all of that. You know? So we, that's the way people think about the law. Okay? But the people of Israel didn't think about the law that way. Even if they found that it was hard, they still loved the law. That's why the psalmist can write in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. Okay? But you also have to remember that, that when they talk about the law, the law is not just Leviticus and the Ten Commandments and all of that. The law is the whole story of Israel. And it's the, it's the picture of God who, who saw our sin and decided to do something about it, and rather than doing it with punishment, He did it with His presence. Rather than turning his face away from us, he came near to us. And so God reveals himself through Israel, through his word, through the law. But second, God used Israel to bless us through Jesus. You see, when God said, all the nations will be blessed through you, he was extending God's blessing out, not just to Abram, not just to Israel, but out to you and to me. See, through Jesus, 
we are the beneficiaries of God's promise to Abraham. And here's how the Apostle Paul says it. He says, So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were, were, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. At the beginning of this series, we said that the Bible is not about you. And oftentimes we want to make it about us. The Bible is not about us. It's about God. But we do fit into that story. We have a place in God's story. And your place is, is this. Is that like Abram, God wants you to trust Him. He wants to reveal Himself to you. He wants you to trust that He will protect and He will provide, that He will give you wisdom in His time. And, and while you might not see it for a while, um, and though sometimes it seems like God won't come through in time, God will always prove Himself to be faithful. And so maybe today you feel like God is asking you to exercise some faith for something. I don't know what your situation is. Maybe it's something that seems a little bit risky to you. Maybe it's something that just seems like, man, I'm not sure if uh, I'm not sure if I can trust. And the story of Abraham is one that tells us that you can trust God because he will be faithful in the end, that whatever you give up will be worth it in the end. Or maybe you believe that God wants to bless you, but you've been waiting for an awfully long time for that to happen. And you're beginning to wonder whether it will ever come. And, and I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe you have something specific in mind. Maybe you want Him to bless you financially. Maybe you've struggled for a long time. Maybe with your health. Maybe with, uh, with other things, with family issues, whatever. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I do believe that God will provide Himself to be faithful for you if you will just trust and wait on Him. But what I also want you to know is that when He does... When you do know God's blessing, when you see that God is good to you, you also have to know that God's blessing is not given us just to hold on to, okay? But we are blessed in order to be a blessing in the same way that he did with Abram, in the same way that he did with the people of Israel, that it's not our job to save the world, but it is our job to be faithful and to hold loosely on to the blessings that God gives us to, to receive what He wants to give us, hold it with an open hand, and allow those blessings to flow from us onto other people as well. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for the example of Abram, that, that even though he had struggles, and even though it, at times it was <coughs> hard to believe that You would be faithful, um, that in the end he saw that You were I thank you that you are a God that even in the middle of our sin, even in the middle of our failure, even when we don't live up to our own standards, you don't run away from us, but you come to us with your presence. And so, Lord, I pray for people today who are, who are struggling with their faith. Pray for people who are struggling because maybe they've done some things in the past and they just don't know that they can be forgiven for it. And Lord, I pray that today that you would assure, reassure them 
that you would let them know of your great love for them, and that they would be able to turn to Jesus who came and offered your presence to us and ultimately died for us and rose again to show us that you will be faithful in the end. And so, God, I, I pray that, that you would give us faith, that we would be able to, to look to the past and see the times where you've come through for us, and that we could look to the example of Scripture and all of the times that you came through for others as well, that we would put our faith in you and know that you are faithful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.